Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey gang, it's good to have you back for another episode. This episode has been sponsored by our generous patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Check the show notes for a link. I also want to give a shout out this week to Ross, who has sent in several wonderful gifts through Venmo. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how much everyone's support means to me. If you'd like to discuss a sponsorship opportunity, go ahead and send me an email at redhillsrancher at gmail.com. There's also a link for that in my link tree in the show notes. I have a great guest lined up for you today. Over the last few weeks, we've heard from Don Schiffelbean with the NCBA, Brett Kinsey from RCAF, Alex from over in the United Kingdom. We got to hear about what some of their livestock tracking was like. And Mike Calicrate, who's always educational. And I felt like I wasn't quite done getting some education. So some of y'all might know this week's guest from his more or less daily YouTube updates on cattle market conditions called Feeder Flash. Joining me on Zoom all the way from Canyon, Texas, Mr. Corbett Wall. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Brian? I'm doing great. And, you know, I, I kind of want to start off. I really don't know a dang thing about you other than you do feeder flash. Okay. So, uh, why don't you tell me where you're at and how you got there? Well, uh, I am here in Canyon, Texas, in my home office. I, uh, I'm employed by DV Auction full-time. I, uh, I do some speaking events uh, on the side, talking about issues with the cattle industry. I do some auctioneering on the side uh, because it's my passion. And DV uh, allows me to do that. But uh, my number one uh, affiliation is with DV and, and I uh, complete all the tasks that I have to do for them uh, before anything else. And that includes the daily feeder flash. Okay. Well, so for those of us that aren't really familiar with feeder flash, what is it? Feeder flash is a daily cattle market report. And I, I emphasize, which comes around pretty regular. Uh, I do it late at night so that it's as fresh as it can possibly be when my listeners want it which is typically uh, during their morning constitutional. Uh, I, I would have a lot of constipated fans if I didn't get that thing out uh, by five or six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so I do, but I typically do it about uh, 10 o'clock at night, uh, usually posted about midnight. And it has all the latest uh, fundamental uh, things that are affecting the cattle market. Uh, and cash markets uh, kind of emphasized on, on feeder cattle auctions. I'm a big, big, big proponent of auctions. Uh, that, that is uh, something that's very near and dear to me. And if I can do anything uh, with the feeder flash, it is to promote uh, 
selling cattle at auction. And that goes right along with uh, DV Auction, who I'm employed by. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mean to get political on there and, and, and touch on uh, touchy subjects, but it has just gotten to the point where this cattle industry has gotten so political that it, it, uh, it veers me in that direction. I, I was a USDA market reporter and uh, market reporting supervisor for almost 20 years, and I always stressed to my trainees, which I had a jillion of them, that uh, uh, the way you report a market is, uh, of course, we reported direct markets and grain markets and hay markets and all kinds of markets, but uh, typically a, a cattle auction. How you report one of those is, if you were leaving the sale after you set and reported on the market and you ran into a buddy of yours in the parking lot on the way out and he said to them, Hey, I didn't make it to the sale. How'd it go? You tell them how it went. You don't just say, uh, well, compared to last week, uh, feeders were uh, mostly steady to $1 higher, trade active, demand good. See, old buddy, you know, that's not the way you report a market. You tell them what happened. You know, who was, who was the ones that were making the market uh, higher or why was the market lower? What are the things that were affecting the market? Uh, you know, what's the moisture conditions? You know, what was the quality or condition of the cattle? Things like that. And I was always frustrated because at USDA, we were never encouraged to do that. Just encouraged fact, to do the bare minimum? Yeah, just bare minimum. Uh, that, that's basically what they wanted. And it ruffled their feathers all the time as I tried to report markets in the manner that I thought that they needed to be reported. Government just has a tendency to set the minimum performance standard and that's where people go. Well, for most individuals that want to go above and beyond, it's easier to back them down to bare minimum than it is to get the lazy ones to do more. So that's typically what they do. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm thinking of, um, and this is something I, I talked about a little bit in the last episode, but just recently I was at the grass fed exchange conference down in Fort Worth. And I listened to a couple guys that operate some meat plants on a panel. And one of them that the discussion was about testing to pass or testing to find. And the regulation says like, you have to do so many E. Coli tests per quarter and uh, the gentleman that was speaking, he said that, you know, he went to a conference and he's listening to other meat plant op operators saying, oh, well, you know, it's such a hassle that we have to do these, these tests once a quarter to submit them to see E. coli. We never find anything. It's just a big hassle. And he said that he tests 10 to 15 times a day and they almost always find something, but they find it in the plant and then they can do something else with that product before it goes out to the consumer. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that's, that's an example of a, that's the most recent example I can find in my head of a government standard where they say, well, you only have to do it four times a year and this is just what you're looking for. And if we're just testing for that absolute minimum standard and just looking for that, you know, just looking in that tiny little window, it's kind of like the difference between peering through a keyhole and looking at an IMAX screen, you know? Right. For sure. I, I, uh, 
early in my career with the federal government, I, I worked for meat grading for a time in acceptance work. And, and uh, you know, they would draw random samples and things like that, uh, which I realize it's not cost effective to, to run samples on all of it. But uh, whenever you do find something that, uh, that needs attention, it makes you wonder about how much else is in there, you know. But I, I, I don't know, you know, in their capacity, uh, what the answer for that would be. I think that my takeaway from that is, and, and this is kind of a conversation I was having the other day, that you have a big organization that ownership is, is detached from, say, running that meat plant, right? Well, the ownership gives the manager a directive, make us money. So he's just going to try to make as much money as possible. And then the ownership can come back, you know, two years later and say, you're spending $3,000 a month on tests. We don't think that that's necessary because the government says you only have to test once a quarter. So we want you to only test once a quarter and do away with all that daily testing. And then over the next several months, contamination gradually, you know, sneaks back into the plant where they can't, where they're not testing regularly. And then they have a problem with consumers and have to do a big recall, but the cost of the recall was probably less than the cost of the testing program. Right. I think, I think that's a big part of uh, corporate ag is that big corporations, that is their only goal is to make lots of money. And, and they have a, you know, they have a boardroom and that, that is all they're concerned with. I think it's up to the individuals within the industry to keep a rein on them uh, in a certain sense. You know, we don't want to push them out. You know, I mean, they employ a lot of people and then they create a lot of food. But, you know, uh, when you have one goal in mind to make as much money as possible, which, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that's not what we should be doing. All of our, uh, of our, uh, economic rules depend on that every you know I, I i was a ag econ major in college every single economic rule you have uh depends on people having a goal of making money so that's how supply and demand works you have to have that but if you're completely railroading uh the way that uh, business has been done and and uh kind of the history of it uh, maybe we need to back up and take a look at that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I want to back up a little bit and let's go through some of your background. Like, uh, so like, where are you from? You mentioned you went to you have a ag econ degree. Where'd right. you get that? Uh, West Texas A and M in Canyon, Texas. Okay, so not too far from where you're at now. No, no, I I left or I left for twenty years and then I came back. I. I, uh, I started out in northeastern New Mexico, Clayton, New Mexico area. That's uh, where I grew up uh, as a child. Uh, my dad bought and sold cattle for a living. And, uh, and, I, and I, I say that uh, in admiration of him. He bought cattle and he sold cattle. He did not have an order for those cattle. He was never an order buyer, and he was proud of that. Uh, you know, on his deathbed, he said, I never had an order. <laughs> you know, he, he bought cattle and he resold them. 
you could do that back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, whenever he was uh, the most active uh, in his career. But uh, he, uh, he was a sale barn trader, which is a dirty word. Uh, nowadays, you're not even supposed to talk about things like that. Uh, most auction markets don't allow that anymore. But back in the day, uh, you needed that. Uh, you need speculators in any market to keep it fluid. And uh, when there when there wasn't a, a, a order there for a certain class of cattle or or any type of livestock, really, uh, he was the guy that would come in at some point and guarantee that there's a market. But uh, he did that uh, all of his life. He was uh, he he bought cattle in the country. Uh, and 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 resold those cattle to to people with uh, feedlot orders or directly to feedlots. Uh, bought calves in the country and and sold them to backgrounders in other areas. But uh, that's what he did. Uh, we had an auction for a while. Uh, we we had that in our blood. My my grandfather built the sale barn in Clayton, New Mexico. That's been there and been running all these years. He built it when he got back from World War II. Uh, he, uh, my, my maternal grandparents uh, ranched south of Clayton. Uh, my grandfather's grandfather uh, land rushed that ranch with his two brothers uh, that had originally come from Wales. Uh, those two, the other two brothers uh, gave up in that dry sandy ranch and they sold out to him and eventually went and rode with uh, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show. Uh, we, we've got tokens that they used to ride around in the tents and throw up in the air and Buffalo Bill would shoot them. But we've got several of uh, those tokens from Buffalo Bill shows that have uh, bullet holes in them. But uh, Very just cool. kind of come uh, from there. Uh, I was a victim of a broken home uh, at middle school age. Uh, my mother and my sister and I moved uh over here uh, south of Amarillo to Canyon, Texas. And my father moved to Clovis, New Mexico, where he leased ranches and, and leased uh, wheat pasture, which it was only 80 some miles over there. So I was over there all, all the time with him. Uh, I got out of college, or I got out of high school. I went to college because that's where the girls were at. And I wouldn't have to work all the time if, if I went to college. So uh, only on the weekends and when we were shipping or doing something like that. So I uh, went to WT, uh, majored in ag business and economics. Uh, wasn't too awfully worried about, uh, uh, you know, what I was going to do with that degree because I was just going to, you know, help my dad. I was, we were just going to buy cattle together and we were going to build an empire. And, and I went to auctioneer school and, and I started dabbling in that. Uh, we turned our, our growing yard into a little sale barn. Uh, and just about the time I was ready to get out of college, my father's health started failing him in a big way. And uh, so that changed everything. And so uh, the one thing that my, my father never did, uh, he was a wheeler dealer at different times. You know, we, we you know, you know, when you're trading for a living, you know, some days uh, are, are good and sometimes are bad. You know, you're all in all the time. Uh, he made a living by his wits. Uh, when things were down, you know, we were down. When things were good, everything was great. Uh, but he forgot to buy any land. 
And uh, I criticize him for that uh, in his in his absence because uh, we always leased uh, our pastures and leased ranches to rent cattle on. Uh, we we owned uh, growing yards and and markets and things like that. And and uh, I was never I was never tied to a place. Okay. And uh, in, in a way, in hindsight, looking back at that, that was a good thing because it was easy for me to leave. Uh, and and get uh, kind of a worldly view of the cattle markets, uh, especially because I was not anchored to a spot. And uh, so whenever, uh, when he started having some serious health problems, you know, I I stayed there and helped him, but then he kind of got better over that, but was not well enough to really, you know, go back to branching out and really hustling like he used to do. And so uh, it was that time where I come to the realization that there was never going to be enough gravy there for more than one spoon. And so uh, I, uh, I started getting uh, more serious about this education that I've been getting. And so uh, I actually graduated uh, with a BS in ag business and economics from West Texas A&M and Canyon. I uh, didn't see any jobs out there that I really thought I went to school four years to take. I started working for uh, meat grading uh, part-time, doing acceptance work and doing work on uh, carcass deliveries, CME deliveries. Um, I was I was doing that and, and whenever I uh, would have to turn in my time card or, or put my hours in, anytime I had to go into the office, which I was mostly in the, in the beef plants around the Amarillo area, I would go in there and uh, I would see the the market reporters that also worked for the Ag Marketing Service that's kind of a sister agency with meat grading. And I'd go in there and those guys were sitting at their desk with their feet up uh, watching video sales and things like that. And I was thinking, I could do that. That, looked, that probably I looked a lot easier. Yeah, I, I, I know everything that needs to do with that. And so I I started talking to them about how I could get on. And they said, well, the only way we hire is through an internship program and you're already graduated. And I said, well, dang. And so they said, but we do have a graduate intern program. Uh, but, you know, you got to compete nationwide for one or two jobs. Uh, but anyway, I, I went back. I went to graduate school and applied for that graduate internship and got one. And I think there was two or three of us that were hired through the intern program that year. And I was one of them. And, uh, and so then I, I started that. I, I, uh, they sent me to uh, South Georgia for, a, for extended uh, internship, which uh, I loved because we, we ordered a lot of cattle out of the Southeast. And, uh, you know, I ran into to buyers there that had, had bought cattle for us to, you know, to send west that we would straighten out and sell uh, to people or, or run on grass or wheat pasture ourselves. So that was interesting. Uh, I had a great trainer there, Ernie Morgan, uh, was an old time market man. He was instrumental in uh, the lean percentage figures on, on slaughter hogs. I learned a lot about that. We graded hogs at hog buying stations back in those days. That was in the mid nineties. Um, I got done with that internship program. I came back. I just had one or two hours of, of school left and they allowed me to work in the Amarillo office. 
So I worked there full time, uh, gathering information on uh, feedlot sales. That's back when we did it uh, all over the phone instead of through uh, the computer like they do with mandatory price reporting. But uh, we, we sat and called feedlots all day, every day, uh, especially early in the week, trying to get a, a, a reading on how big a show list they had to work with that week. Um, you know, what they were kind of going to be asking for the cattle. And then as we got close to the middle part of the week, Wednesday and Thursday, we really worked on phones hard uh, trying to get that first first guy that pulled the plug, you know, to sell the cattle and what price levels. And uh, and then, you know, it was always a big deal each week when we got our first confirmed sales and we'd run to our at that time, it was sprint mail. You know, we didn't really post it on the Internet. We'd sprint mail it and then it would go to all those uh, those little readers that everybody had that, you know, and the 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 media had that, you know, just ran all the time printing out information. And and we would put our first report out that we had confirmed sales and at what level. And then within 10 minutes, Cattlefax would put out the same number and project 20,000 heads sold. <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of the way that it worked every single week. But uh, and that's kind of the way that goes. But uh, we built relationships with the feedlots at that time. They sold 100,000 head in the Texas feedlot area every week, that's, give, or take, give or take eight or 10,000. That's fat cattle, slaughter-ready cattle. Yes, okay. finished fat cattle going to slaughter out of the feedlots. Most of the feedlots, uh, although some of them were corporate then, uh, most of them were custom uh, cattle feeding operations. And, uh, and, the, and the feedlot managers had grit. Uh, they, they played, they, they, uh, they played hardball, you know, they bargained with the packer buyers each week. Uh, they worked, they negotiated, uh, they tried to get all they could get every week for their customers. Uh, they did the same thing in Kansas. They'd sell near 100,000 head in Kansas. They did the same thing in Nebraska. Uh, and, and that's the way business was done back in those days. And it hasn't been that long ago, really, if you think about it. That was in 96. Uh, when I was doing that, uh, I left there shortly after. Back in those days, if you worked for Market News to to advance, you had to transfer. And so I transferred to South St. Paul, Minnesota. I worked uh, in at the stockyards in South St. Paul half the time, and I worked at the at the cash grain floor at the Minneapolis Grain Exchange the other half of the time. Uh, that way I could pull relief for one or the other people that they were out. But uh, it was the first time I'd really been exposed to a terminal market, an old time river terminal market, and selling fat cattle at auction. And, and that was that was the nation's cow market at that time. They had a viable cow market five days a week. And so we called a trend on that. And it's amazing how much difference steady to firm is or fully steady or, you know, uh, steady to a dollar higher. It's, it's amazing how much difference that made in the way people perceived markets on a daily cow market. And like I said, that was the nation's cow market at that time. Uh, learned a lot on the uh, Minneapolis uh, grain exchange on the cash floor. We would have pie tins with samples from uh, grain carts or trains of grain. And you would have buyers come around and, and 
look at that grain and bid. Uh, 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 it was actually a basis that they would bid. It would be basis the board uh, for, for dark northern spring mostly, but also Durham wheat. But uh, learned a lot there. Uh, uh, hold up. Like, yeah. Some of these terms that you use, like, I have the understanding of about a fifth grader with like when, when you get really deep into talking about marketing terms, um, I get lost. So bias the board. What the hell does that even mean? Well, basis is what I said. Basis, not bias. Yeah. Okay. Well, basis is always the difference between your cash and your futures market. Okay. So if they would bid, uh, course now let's say uh your minneapolis spring wheat which it's all out of chicago now but at that time on the floor right down from where our office was at on the floor you know you had people in the pits you know throwing their hands back and forth uh bidding on it in minneapolis minnesota just like they did all the other uh products in in uh in chicago other than kansas city hard red winter wheat and they did that in kansas city but if they came in there and they looked at your cash floor, so that was totally different. That was a cash price. And they were looking at samples of grain cars or trains of grain. And they were making a bid. Uh, well, I mean, use today's quotes. Let's say uh, your futures price was $12 a bushel. Okay. And they would bid plus 35. So that day, you know, if uh, if the seller would take it and it was, you know, it was your big grain companies that were buying and selling from each other. If they accepted that bid, we would close that price before the futures closed, but it was going to be plus 35, whatever the whatever the futures close was. So, so if it was, if if it the, was $12. If the futures closed at 12, the cash price would be 12.35. Okay. Or, or it could be a negative basis. Uh, just depending on how your markets were, if it, you know, if it was, if it was minus 35, then you would take it off on, and then we would post that, uh, that close on prices. And sometimes we didn't sell. Sometimes we would close with a bid price or an asking price, but uh, we did that all by hand. And it was on a, a, a ledger or a clipboard just right outside our office. And when the board in, indeed closed, People didn't really know what our what our basis bids were that we were going to close with because we kept that in hand. We'd go around and interview the buyers and sellers just like they used to in, in the old stockyards when they sold everything private treaty. Uh, we would have all that. And then we would go out and we would we would post the close by writing it on this board. And sometimes there was nobody around, nobody cared. And sometimes people were hanging all over the top of each other, waiting for us to, to make the strikes with their, with their pencil. And it was, it was interesting. And then, then there'd be a world of grain uh, wheat that would sell off of those prices that were established there on that cash grain floor. It sounds like nobody can probably really understand how, every, how all the market forces work and interact with each other to keep track of everything. Not really. And, and it's rare when you find fundamental people like myself that's always been involved in, in cash sales and cash markets 
it, it's rare to find people that totally understand that and understand all the technical or the uh, the squiggly lines on the graphs that uh, all of your uh, uh, technical uh, market analysts look at, you know, when they're looking at head and shoulders and filling gaps and all that kind of thing. Very few people can do both. I, I know just enough about the technical side to be dangerous. And so I don't comment on it very often, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm totally fundamental and I'm totally a marketing guy when it comes to cattle. Uh, not so much on production, you know, even I, I, I just, it uh, frightens me how much time most of your cattle producers spend on production and they don't uh, spend enough on marketing. I agree with that. And I, that's, that's been a problem as long as I've been around in the cattle industry and probably you too. We're not good marketers. Like, no. and we're not good market. It's not our fault. We're not good marketers. I mean, marketing is hard and you have to spend time on the things that, you know, that are going to keep you, keep the lights on a lot of times. And to some extent that is marketing, but I, what I keep going back to is I think that we've just, us cattle producers were sold a lie 40 odd years ago with the checkoff. And ever since then, our, you know, our share of the, the producer's share of the consumer beef dollar has done nothing but fall since we've got the checkoff. And the part of the lie was, is let us help you market that. Let us advertise for you. We'll do a better job. But yet we see the share of the consumer dollar keep falling and falling and falling. We've given up our marketing power to, you know, these giant conglomerates that have all the power in the market and have basically evaporated the cash trade. Yeah, they spend most of that money preaching to the choir. Um, you know, you, you always, always wondered why you would open up these cattle magazines, whether it be a, a production type magazine or a market publication or anything, and you've got all these ads in here for beef. Those people pretty much like beef. You know, I would <laughs> a lot rather see them put a billboard in Times Square or something like that. Uh, to reach people that you know that uh, we we don't necessarily get our word to uh, very often, but as you know, and and uh, I, I don't want to get too uh, political on here, but most of those big ads that are run in those uh, those market publications are done for hush money, uh, as long as they are, are given a lot of advertising dollars in there with uh, your and mine beef checkoff dollars. Well, then they kind of control uh, the message for that publication. Yes. Uh, You're a content was... creator. I'm a content creator. And uh, my show is sponsored by my patrons. So I don't have any, any corporate interest, any company telling me what I can and can't say. And I don't have to worry about upsetting anybody. I just have to worry about keeping the people that listen to this podcast happy and hoping they'll throw a few bucks my way every month. I I, I knew that we were we were getting a pretty good uh, following with the feeder flash whenever we received uh, uh, an email to the headquarters, not to me, but to the to my boss's office that uh, NCBA had considerable amounts of money that they wanted to spend uh, advertising in, in, a, in, a, in a way that we were 
uh, putting out our message and that we were reaching producers that maybe they weren't uh, having a lot of success reaching and and they continued to put in this email that they had considerable funds that they would like to push our way to help promote this. And we're like, yeah, that'd be great. But once we, we put that little check off down in the corner of, of my videos, I've lost all my credibility, you know. And, and then whenever I decided to say the truth or, or the truth, uh, according to me, uh, they may not agree with that. And they'll pull that sponsorship dollar like that if they don't agree Absolutely with you. Absolutely, they will. And <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's why I like to remain independent. I think, and I don't want anybody. If I upset my fans, they'll tell me. Mm -hmm. They'll tell me immediately, and they'll tell me what they want to hear. They'll tell me what I did wrong, and I've got to listen to them. Right. Well, and I do too. For to an extent, but uh, we've got great sponsors uh, at DV Auction. Uh, the way that we do our sponsorship is we offer, offer it in packages, and I don't have to deal with that, which is great uh, because we have guys that are, that are professionals at that, and they will put packages together, uh, whether it's a, a, a drug company or feed additives or, you know, anything that any output that would want to get in front of cattle producers' eyes. Uh, they will run banner ads on uh, on production sales that are going on that are constantly going across while guys sitting there shopping for bulls, uh, you know, and they and they may decide that they want a sponsorship on the feeder flash, uh, and and they kind of know what they're getting into when they do it. And we have great sponsors. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that uh, that it's that my reports are that volatile, but at times. Uh, people disagree with me and, and, and sometimes we've lost sponsors for that. Sometimes we've gained sponsors for that. Uh, we had a, uh, we had a, a animal health company that was a big sponsor of ours, uh, that was, you know, sponsoring all kinds of stuff and loving it, getting a lot of positive feedback from their sponsorship. Uh, they changed the supervisor. Uh, I came out against the uh, the jab mandate, the the vaccine mandate, uh, right. not not for cattle, but just for you know, I was just giving my point of view on there on the COVID vaccinations, and was against that. Uh, they immediately come out and said that was against their their uh, company policy, and and they pulled sponsorship. But that's fine. We had others to fill in where they left off. Yeah, I. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's kind of funny. I can't imagine why NCBA would be having trouble reaching some producers that you'd have a different audience than they would. That just seems that seems really odd. Now, as I was talking about this with another friend yesterday, so we have NCBA, we have RCAF, and we have U.S. Cattlemen's Association. I'd really like to see on a map where all of their members are and how big of an operation they are and what type like it it seems like ncba's membership is going to be mostly full of feeders and small cattle operators in the east rcaf is going to be your big cow calf guys kind of in the northern plains and usca is southern plains and southwest and again more cow calf guys yeah uh, actually um the u.s cattlemen association which i 
am affiliated with. I, I do. I, I, uh, I uh, work with them some, and and I'm actually on uh, some of their uh, their committees, and and I support them in almost everything that they do. Um, so I don't know how many years ago it's been, four or five years ago, they asked if I would come do a presentation, and it was one of the first presentations that I did for hire. Uh, they asked if I would come talk to them about some different issues that were affecting the the markets and the industry and things like that. When I went up to the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, I was surprised to find that I did not find pot bellies and cheap suits. I found cattle guys, producers with shit on their boots, and uh, and and wore out jeans, you know, and maybe a maybe a, a dated blazer you know, because they were trying to fix up a little bit, you know, but wore out hats and, and just just salt of the earth type of people. But they're actually pulling their producers from the same place that our cap is. It's mostly northern plains, uh, mostly uh, mountain states, even going back west as far as uh, Washington state. But, uh, but very, very few uh, southern plains people and hardly any Southeastern people. So, uh, it, you know, uh, RCAF and U.S. Cattlemen pull their members from, from basically the same pool. Of course, you're gonna have, you know, you're gonna have few people, uh, you know, coming in uh, once in a while, but uh, your Southern Plains is almost entirely NCBA, uh, but, but it, it also is some of your, your affiliates, that have gotten tired of NCBA policy and are kind of looking for a home. Yeah. Uh, you know, as opposed to Kansas Livestock Association, which is which runs NCBA along with Texas Cattle Feeders Association, you have a Kansas Cattlemen's Association, which is people looking for for other direction. You know, they're looking for a, a breath of fresh air. You know, another policy, and 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 they. They kind of split between RCAP and U.S. Cattlemen's Association, and you have several of those grassroots uh, organizations that do that. I, um, I, th I let my membership to Kansas Cattlemen's go. I've never been a member of KLA, but I, and I'm definitely a paid-up member of RCAP. Maybe I should go get that Kansas Cattlemen's Association membership renewed. Yeah. But NCBA, um, no. No, they don't get my membership dollars. They have to get my checkoff dollars, but I don't have to send them any membership dollars. Yeah. And, and, but if you were talking to someone from NCBA, they would say, well, those are not our dollars, you know, that, that, but it's funny that those dollars make up 70% of their budget. Uh, you know, that those, those dollars are really allocated from the, from the state beef boards. But though many of those state beef boards are really inbred with the uh, affiliates of NCBA, and and uh, they'll throw a few dollars here and there. They haven't thrown too many dollars at Bill Bullard, uh, and and not that he wants or needs them. They have thrown a few dollars to U.S. Cattlemen's Association. You know, as they're sitting on tens of millions of dollars, they'll they'll throw them a. Hundred thousand a year, or maybe hundred and fifty thousand a year, uh, to work on a project or something like that. But maybe buy a little silence too. Yeah, 
Well, it's not working if that's what they're spending it on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. So we, we can talk about markets all day. Yep. We can talk about problems in the markets all day. How do we fix it? Well, as, as, as your listeners, I assume most of them understand it's, it's, it's very technical and, and there's just a lot of different, uh, things coming in from, from every direction of the field that affects these markets. Uh, and a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, I was at a uh, U.S. Cattlemen's Association event in Billings, Montana. We uh, were getting together with some of the, the, the more, more outspoken members there, uh, including Justin Tupper, uh, who owns uh, St. Ange Livestock in St. Ange, South Dakota. Uh, uh, Lee Richmond, uh, who is a cattle farmer feeder in, uh, in uh, Nebraska. There were several of us around there, and, and we were ruminating on a, on a ribeye that we had just completed, and we were enjoying uh, adult beverages uh, at Jake's Steakhouse there in downtown Billings, Montana. And, and somebody said that exact thing. We're losing our markets. How do we fix it? And we hem hawed around there for a little bit. And, and, uh, and they asked me what I thought. Well, being in my position, which I, I haven't been with uh, USDA for eight years now. Okay. Um, I don't have any sour grapes about uh, my time there or leaving USDA because it afforded me so much opportunity to learn. Uh, I mentioned after I, I, I was in South St. Paul, Minnesota, after there, I, I went to supervise a one-man office in, in New Holland, Pennsylvania, in uh, Lancaster County, where the Amish Mennonite trade is and, and went to fat cattle auctions there and then got moved back to St. Joseph, Missouri, where I spent most of my career in St. Joseph, Missouri. And I got moved in there whenever they started mandatory price reporting. And I moved there to work on mandatory price reporting. And I helped publish some of the very first reports from NPR and, uh, and then moved back into voluntary reporting uh, with the federal state program. But, you know, I, I was able to see a lot of, of different angles of that. You know, I've, I've reported markets in uh, Montana and Nebraska and, and all over the country in Kansas. But uh, I told him, I said, you've got, you've got to have more negotiated trade. We are losing all of our negotiated trade. From the time in the mid-90s when I was in the Amarillo office working and we were gathering all the trade with a big yellow legal notepad and a, and a fat pencil uh, to, to having all that information turned in automatically, it, it actually ramped up uh, the loss of negotiated trade and the formula deals and all that kind of stuff. And, and we were just, we're just losing it so fast. Uh, we've got the tail wagging the dog here. When you've got over 90% of your cattle selling off of what, less than 10% bring, how much sense does that make? None. And how much effort does it take to manipulate that small price? 
in uh, in 2015 after the, after your big prices of 2014 but in the wreck of 2015 less than three percent of the cattle of the fat cattle in texas sold in a negotiated manner was say 2. that again 2.6 percent of all the finished cattle in texas feedlot areas which includes the oklahoma panhandle and eastern new mexico 2.6 percent of them sold negotiated 97.4 sold off of those that is an unhealthy market that's unreal it's it's absolutely mind-boggling and yet we've got texas cattle feeders association and kla and ncba wanting think they think that there's no problem with that there's no problem with that is packers dictating what you get for the cattle and uh, and and getting the uh, negotiated trade price so small that you can manipulate it with a hundred dollar bill under the table. It's wow. it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, this is what I was telling them at U.S. Cattlemen's Association. I said we've got to preserve this negotiated trade. We're losing it all in Texas. It's it's very small in Kansas. Uh, you know, it's still healthy. In Iowa and Nebraska, Colorado is just about done. We've got to preserve that negotiated trade. You've got to, you've got to have that bid ask uh, relationship. And 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 I, and I, when I give my presentations, I always say it, it's like those uh, those uh, American uh, uh, junk hunters or what do they call them? American pickers. Yeah. Those picker guys. You ever watch those guys? I love to watch that show. You know, they go into somebody's basement and they hold up a piece of junk. And as they hold that piece of junk up and blow the dirt off of it, the guy that owns that piece of junk that forgot that he even owned it, all of a sudden that piece of junk becomes very important to him. And and, uh, he realizes that, that it's more valuable maybe than what he thought it was. And so they're saying, well, what do you want for this? You know, and and he has no idea and he doesn't want to price it too cheap. Well, I don't know. What would you give me for it? And that that back and forth right there, the human element of trade is what we've got to preserve. If we don't have that, uh, you know, what kind, that's not a market. That That's not price discovery. You have to have a bid ask. It's just like in an auction. The, the auctioneer is the one doing the haggling, you know, the 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 uh, product is there in front of them you've got the guys bidding on the product and and they're bidding against each other but you can do it in, in a fast mode with the auctioneer doing the haggling for you so you know and, and there's a lot of things and i love auctions i love auctioneering but i just love all the mind games that are going on in a in a 30 second uh draft of, of auction sale and uh, I, I love that. And I love sitting and watching auctions, knowing who's buying what, who's pushing on them. And, uh, and, and a lot of guys, uh, and I've heard Steve Stratford say it, and Justin Tupper has been famous for saying it. The guy that comes in second in the auction. Yep. He's probably as important as anybody or definitely is. He pushed them to that level. And, and you've got guys that will just sit in an auction and push just out of honoriness and and that and that's awesome you've you've got to have that and and your cow buyers are the best we've still got 
uh, a really viable uh, negotiated trade in slaughter cow markets. The bulk of them are still sold in auctions. And doesn't I've got one of my best friends in, in, uh, that I grew up with, he's, a, he's a, a cow buyer for a major cow kill. And he, he tells me, he said, I went to this auction, uh, this, this particular auction that has a lot of slaughter cows, and I never had an order. My order was not to get over a load. And I said, well, what did you go for? And he said, just to push, just to keep, just to keep the other guys honest. And I think we don't have that in your fat cattle arena. We need something like that in your fat cattle arena. Yeah, for sure. So you said that, you know, cow trade, there's still a lot of cash discovery in the cow trade, you know, and we've been talking about, you know, we've mentioned grids and formulas. Now I'll admit, I think I have about a 2% understanding of how those things work. And my understanding is like, okay, so you have a grid or a formula and they're based on what the carcass yields and grades, right? And right. pounds. And the price that they pay for those pounds is determined on what the cash market is. Right. But if less than 15%, I mean, and I guess sometimes that, that you know, 15% fat cattle cash trade, that number can kind of be up for debate. Like you said, in, in 2015, less than 3% of the cattle in Texas, fat cattle in Texas traded on a cash basis. Where are the where are these cash trades actually happening for fat cattle? Like, are they all concentrated in one or two barns, or is it like, uh, do all the well, regions those, have those? Do not include um, auctions. So, in in the Southern Plains, in Kansas, and in Texas, there are no fed cattle auctions. There used to be, though, right? There, well, sure, there used to be at one time, but that that went direct, uh, went to direct trade. Um, as soon as your, your feedlots moved out into the great American desert, uh, you know, back when we had our terminal markets like Chicago and Omaha and Sioux City and Sioux Falls, that they, and then they were real viable back in the 30s, 40s, 50s and early 60s, you know, all your trade was negotiated, but it was, uh, it was a private treaty sale on the yards. Well, when they started in the 60s, moving your cattle feeding out to Western Kansas and the Texas Panhandle and places like that. Um, these, you know, your, your feedlots started being built out there. Your guys in the Midwest, it was all farmer feeders at that time. They got tired of fighting the mud all the time. And they found out that even though there wasn't that much feed in the Texas Panhandle and there wasn't very many cattle there, transportation was getting efficient enough that you could haul feed and you could haul cattle to a set of pens on the hillside with a feed mill and some bunk, and you could feed them more efficiently there than you could on the farm. Uh, at that time, everybody talks about PNS not enforcing things. Back when we were at the stockyards, you had PNS agents walking the alleys. <clears throat> packers and stockyards agents, making sure everything was on the up and up, making sure that uh, nobody was, was getting an unfair advantage or anything like that. People think that the, that your, your stockyards trade was just willy-nilly, and there's nothing going to be further from the truth. The PNS guys were on top of things all the time. They, they had relationships with the buyers and the sellers. If something wasn't right, they were going to get informed about it. 
they had rules at the stockyards back in those days. Your Packers couldn't just, and, and your Packer buyers were all friends with the commission guys. But uh, I have a good story, a good friend of mine whose dad was a, had a commission firm at Omaha at the stockyards. Uh, and he was really good friends with the, the, the main Packer buyer at one of the Packers. And he, he asked his dad when he was a kid, he said, he said, Dad, how come we don't hang out with Bob when we're at the stockyards? You know, you guys go fishing together and you guys go to ball games. And you drink together and all, do all that kind of thing. He says, how come we don't hang out with Bob when we're at the stockyards? And his dad said, son, Bob is a Packer buyer. Why would I want to talk to him when I know that he's going to lie to me? He's my good friend and I like Bob, but we're not going to talk when we're at the stockyards. <laughs> it's a great story. And it sums up the relationship between, uh, between your Packers and your feeders. But, uh, but your Packer buyers just couldn't go into the yards and just start running around willy nilly bidding on cattle. If they did your biggest Packer, let's say it was Swift or Armor at that time, all they had to do is run them across the street or, or up a chute to get them into their plant. They would run to the commission guy who had the most cattle or who had the best cattle. And he would sop all those cattle up. And, and then the guys that didn't have as many or weren't quite as good, they, they'd be sucking hind tit. Well, that wasn't the way. And they used to talk about when the bell rang. Now, let's say at nine o'clock, they'd say the bell rang. Then your Packers could enter the yards. And at that time, they would draw out of somebody's hat. Uh, they would draw uh, their commission firm. And that's where they started. They would start at that commission firm. And then there was a rotation after that. So maybe your biggest Packer drew the smallest commission firm or the guy who had the plainest cattle or the fewest cattle, that's where he had to start buying. And okay. people didn't have cell phones, you know, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't, didn't know what was going on on the other side of the yards. And so he had to start trying to buy those cattle. And by the time he worked his way around to the commission firm that he, he would have liked to have started on, likely those cattle would be all gone by then. That kept everything uh, on an even playing field. Yeah. Well, now what few cattle that your packers bid on which it's all done in the country for the most part we do have the fed cattle exchange which i support uh through central stockyards where they offer cattle online uh but it, it's had a limited amount of success i would say if we get this bill pushed through they could have some more because that would be one way that you could buy cattle in a negotiated manner but especially down in, down here in texas if they only have to negotiate on about 10% of the cattle, you know, you can, you can send a simple text. Uh, the packer buyers send texts back and forth to each other. They collude. Uh, they gang up on the few guys that sell cash cattle and they keep the market under pressure all the time. You know, we look at, uh, they're, they're, they're bidding 136 on cattle this morning. And, and we've got cattle selling for 144 in nebraska and iowa eight cents spread so what explains yes, that they are they are better but they're not that much better and it's just that the guys in iowa and nebraska they've got uh negotiating leverage they've, they've got they've got you know their better cattle and they've got uh deals that they want and they've got the regional packers that's the most important thing is they've got those guys that'll come in second a lot of times they've got regional packers that don't have 
as many big sweetheart deals and they aren't tied into these big corporate feeding outfits that supply them with over 80% of their needs. They need to buy cattle on the open market. And, and most of them feature uh, a higher quality product. And so they'll go after those, those better cattle and they'll go after volume of cattle when, they, when they're short bought. But, you know, we can talk about all these sweetheart deals in the Southern Plains, you know, and, and, uh, and a lot of these people think that's the only way they can get a true price for their cattle is get into some sweetheart deal. The only real premium down here is volume. Yeah. You know, whenever you've got one, one uh, cattle feeding enterprise that's going to supply you with, uh, in some instances, over three-fourths of your needs for, for a particular facility on your, of a big four-packer, you know, how, how valuable is he to you? You know, I mean, he, he gives you almost everything you need, and then all you have to do is just pick around the edges for the rest. That, that's not a that's not a fair way to trade and and it's really limited the upside of our of our uh, fed cattle price and, and then it's trickled down it's limited our yearling price and our calf price for our cow calf producers okay and that's why the share of the retail dollar over the last 30 years has gone from the 60 cent percentile down in the 30 cent percentile Yep. Yep. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned some legislation. So let's talk about some legislation that's, that's coming through. We've got, uh, let's see, we've got Fisher Grassley, which I guess has become the compromise bill now. Um, and we've got 5014. Um, I think that's, that's it. I don't think there's any movement on, uh, Cory Booker's bill to ban CAFOs. So what do you know? Of? I, think, I think that's actually part of your 5014 bill there. Okay. But, but uh, okay. So I mentioned that we were, we were visiting with this uh, at a U.S. Cattlemen's Association meeting and we said, you know, and, and they said, well, what do we got to do? And I said, well, we've got to preserve, maintain, and grow our negotiated cash trade. And everybody agreed. And most all of these, uh, smaller grassroots uh, associations like Nebraska Cattlemen's and Iowa Cattlemen's, they had policy that they supported at least 50% negotiated cash, but they weren't doing anything with it. And nobody was really doing anything with it. And so they said, well, let's see what we can get done uh, in, in, on Capitol Hill. Let's see what we can get done uh, let, let's let's try to to mandate a minimum percentage negotiated cash trade, you know. And, and several of us, including me, says, "How the hell are you going to do that? You can't tell them how to do business, you know. That that that's against our conservative values, you know. Right. Uh, you know that 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 pushes me off my mark a little bit, you know. I, I don't really like that." And they said, "Well." Let's see. In Texas, at that time, they were trading about 7% negotiated cash trade. And he said, these four packers are taking that 7% and they're entering in it, in it to all these AMAs, we're saying now, these alternative marketing agreements, these formula trades, the sweetheart deals. They're using that as a base price. They are totally exploiting that number. And some of them are not participating in the establishment 
of that minimal negotiated trade. So if they're not participating, especially with each location that they have, and they're exploiting that number, we've got a, we've got a chance right here that we can mandate that they participate in that number that they are using. And so we started pushing on it. Uh, everybody wanted 50 at the, at the beginning. Uh, and then the, the 14 is, that's, that's on cash trades uh, with delivery within 14 days. So it's a current, it's a current deal. So the 5014 is what we immediately started pushing. Well, I told the guys, and it's not all me, everybody had a play in it. I'm just coming from my point of view. I said, I don't think 50 will work uh, because it's too aggressive. I said, I think we'd be a lot safer with 30 because at 30%, that allows your, your big corporate feeders, they're not gonna change the, the the, we're not, we're not going to be able to upset the whole apple cart, you know, right. Your, your big corporate feeders that are in line with an individual packer. We don't want to force them out of business and we, and we're not meaning to change the way that they're doing, you know, doing their business, but we need to leave them room. So, so we need to leave them room to do business as they want to do it. And we also need to leave room for these people that are in these uh, these branded programs, uh, and the way the branded programs work is is a, a packer goes to a, an individual cattle feeder or producer, and they says, "Your cattle are just too good. They're so much better than your neighbor's cattle because you're so much smarter than your neighbor, and you're doing such a good job." Uh, with your genetics and you're feeding the cattle superior to him and your cattle are just way better than your neighbors. And so we really want to put them in our Excalibur gold and diamond ranch program. And man, the guy feels so good about it. And he's like, really, you want to put mine in there? And he says, yes. And he says, here, sign this right here. And, and uh, promising all your cattle to us, uh, you're not going to take bids from any other packer. Uh, we're, we're going to buy them. We're going to base them off the five area weighted average. And then we'll give you premiums and discounts after that. And then, you know, then we're going to give you this uh, deal to hang on the wall that says you're in the Excalibur golden diamond program. And, and you're one of the very, very few that has cattle good enough to do that. And he says, sure. Where do I sign? And then as the back of buyers driving off his place, he calls his boss and he says, yeah, we got all his cattle tied up too. And that's the way those branded programs go on. But they make those guys feel so good because they, they make them believe that they are smarter uh, than their neighbor down the road. And just by nature, your cattle feeders are so competitive that, uh, that, that that's what they want to do. And, and they always talk about plus in the market. Well, you know, I spent $30,000 on a bull and then you know, on, I've maintained a, uh, ownership of these cattle all the way through and I've done such a great job of it and all this kind of stuff and I plus the market and what does that mean well instead of uh, my cattle bringing 136 they brought 136.35 and I don't really care that if I would have teamed up with some of my other producers we might could have got 138 or 40 because I got 35 cents 100 more than my neighbor and, and that's really all I care about. And that's, that's the way that the competitive nature of cattle feeding has done 
while you've got four Packers over there. And I've always said it's easier to get four heads together than it is 400 or 4,000. And they're keeping the, the market under wraps all the time. And, and, and of course, you know, they're making billions and billions of dollars every quarter having the, the best, uh, uh, the best that they've ever had, the best return they've ever had. And you've got cattle feeders going out of business and trickling down. You got backgrounders that can't make any money and you got cow calf people that can't maintain their, their property. And so that, that opens a door to talk about the cow herd numbers and the way they've been declining. Is that, uh, is that a worry for the next few years, uh, in the beef business? With you know, I, think it's an, I think it's an opportunity, you know, uh, and, and that's basically a, a cycle, you know, you, ag people, you give a farmer or a rancher a market, an attractive market, and he'll flood it as fast as he can possibly do it. That's what he does. Flood it and screw up the price. Yes. And that's the way, that's the way that goes. So, uh, you know, we're, we're in the cycle now where, uh, you know, we, it's gotten hard times. And, and when you, when you're talking about farming or ranching it has so much to do with drought and we, we've had serious, serious droughts in some of our major production areas, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota being the biggest one, you know, they, they, there's a lot of big ranches up there. And, uh, and as they start calling that herd, calling that herd, uh, because they can't afford you know they don't have the the forage to support those cattle well then slowly it's going to start affecting our production and then our production goes down uh the price will go back up with supply and demand and uh and we're gonna we're gonna see some really really attractive prices for uh for calves and yearlings i don't know if we have we don't have the we i know we don't have the leverage to get the fed cattle market where it should go uh, with these tighter numbers, because they, they've got such a control on it, they'll keep it under wraps. But, um, you know, your, your cattle, your, your backgrounders and your cattle feeders are eternal optimists. And so they're going to be betting on the come, thinking how good it's going to be. And we're going to see some really, really attractive prices. And I hope we get some of this Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act legislation pushed through the system before that starts happening, because as soon as, as uh, our producers and our feeders start making a little bit of money, they're going to totally forget about all this. Yeah. Yeah. So what's that, what's the price discovery and transparency act? What will that do and how will that affect uh, the cash trade situation? Okay. What, what, uh, what it is, and, and it is a compromise, but uh, most of your opponents use that compromise because they they uh, they like to, to to use the term because it's showing that we're giving in. Well, so you had your fifty fourteen bill uh, with Charles Grassley, and and I and I respect and admire Charles Grassley so much because he works for his constituents, and he's been there for a long long time, and uh, and one of his biggest supporters has been the Iowa Cattlemen's Association. And we still have farmer feeders in Iowa, and it affects a large portion of the small communities in the in the rural part of Iowa. 
to keep that viable. And so Chuck Grassley understands that he always has, and he's always pushed uh, for, for that uh, negotiated trade to remain active and, and have a good market where people can afford to feed cattle and, and walk their, their grain to town is what they say. It's, it gives them another option to market their grain, which a lot of them do. So he was for 5014. And a lot of people say that, that the results of this bill or the people that are pushing it don't want 5014. Hell, I wanted 5014. I'd like 107, you know. I mean, <laughs> it'd be great, but we can't get it. It, it doesn't do any good. And, and as much as I admire so much of the RCAF movement and everything, they are famous for biting off more than they can chew. They, they, they push for things that they know they're not going to get just to raise awareness and things like that. We got an opportunity to get this bill passed in legislation and make it a law. So, so, uh, so let's say I was, uh, I and, and, and us at U.S. Cattlemen Association were thinking that 3014 would be a, a better way to do it. So then we had Deb Fisher, who is a, is a, grew up on a ranch. She's a rancher in Nebraska. And she thought, well, this, this 3014 sounds like something that we can get because let's say right now, which is true, uh, Iowa is still negotiating about half their cattle, about 50%, and Nebraska is about 33. So, so naturally, that 30% sounded doable to her. And as, as we started trying to get that, they got a lot of pushback, of course, um, and, and mostly from your North American Meat Institute and NCBA, which, uh, which North American Meat Institute is Beef Association. Yeah, North American Meat Institute is just a mouthpiece for the Packers. Exactly. They, 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 uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's no uh, happenstance that some of your biggest official and officials in USDA get a nice cushy job with NAMI uh, whenever they retire. Oh no, that's perfectly okay. That that's yeah, fine. that's exactly. fine. It's 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 just the way that your military leaders, you know, get, get to have cushy jobs with those uh, defense contractors whenever they retire. You know, it's, it's natural. Totally, totally no conflict of interest. Totally not a conflict. Absolutely. <laughs> so, as as Deb Fisher started working through her bill, <clears throat> she saw she was getting a lot of pushback. Of course, Chuck Grassley was getting a lot of pushback too. But both of them wanted to, to wanted to preserve at least what negotiated trade we have right now and not let it go any further down. And so they did compromise and, and they decided what uh, and what the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act is, is it will freeze within the five area at least. And, and they're probably going to establish two more areas to encompass the other the other parts of the country. So it's going to be five to seven area uh, regionally. They're going to preserve the percentage of negotiated trade that we have right now or what we've had over the last two years. And, and actually in Texas, that's going to be a little better than what we've been historically because during the worst of the pandemic, we did see some decent uh, uh, negotiated trade in Texas because we found out that some of those sweetheart deals that your, your big corporate feeders in Texas are enjoying with their packers include profit sharing and 
box beef cutout values. So they refused to take some of their cattle whenever we saw the biggest disparage, whenever when the shelves were empty and housewives were fighting over a pound of hamburger, uh, they decided to let those cattle set and they were going to these, these smaller uh, cattle feeders, little custom lots and things like that, that had cattle that were in loose hands that hadn't seen a major packer come to their place for years and years and decades. And they were saying, hey, you know, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you so much for these cattle. Well, sure, you know, what's the catch here? Meanwhile, those guys that had the had the sweetheart deals are sitting on their cattle because they would have cost too much if they turned them in on the on the sweetheart deal with the profit sharing or the or the or the 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 dressed beef price. So then and they let those so then they let those get over finished and they discounted yes, the hell out of them. Exactly. And and they're, and they're their old sweetheart buddies, you know, they, and, and those guys will fight for them to the end because they really have to have them. If you're feeding 250,000 cattle or half a million cattle or a million cattle like, like Five Rivers is for JVS, I mean, you can't operate without your sweetheart deal because you've got, they, you know, you've got way too many cattle to sell. You have to be able to schedule them in all the time. And, and I can't stress enough how fearful, I don't care if it's five rivers all the way down to your smallest farmer feeder in Iowa, they are scared to death of their packer because they can shut them off. They can absolutely, and then they do that. They, they, they uh, penalize them all the time. I, I have a lot of friends, especially up in the Midwest, that get frustrated with the fed cattle market, and they'll tweet or, or put a Facebook post out on critical of your of your packers and and whenever they get ready to sell cattle they said well you need to take that post down yeah you know, you know they, they're always pulling rank on them and and they are so fearful of them and that's why you see all your big cattle feeders in, in kansas and texas fighting tooth and nail against this cattle price discovery and transparency act and they have to be vocal about it so that their packers see that they are 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 good minions and they're following what they what they should be doing for them but uh going back to cattle price discovery and transparency act what it will do is it will freeze the percentage levels that we have right now which doesn't sound great to a lot of guys that want more negotiated trade including me but one thing that they're forgetting is that it will freeze those percentages per packer location okay so right now what little negotiated trade we see in the southern plains is mostly done by just a few plants well if you take some of those plants that don't do anything but schedule cattle in we've got we've got plants big four plants in the texas panhandle that don't have a packer buyer they don't have a fat cattle buyer they don't have a procurement office they don't have anybody to do that because they're just the ones that just schedule cattle in. They just that's call five rivers and say, I need five pot loads on Thursday. Yeah, that, that's all they do. They basically own the cattle, but packers are not supposed to own cattle. But if I've got a contract that they're mine, I do. And that's what they have with these AMAs or these, uh, these formula deals. But whenever we bring those, those other locations that haven't been active in negotiated trade, up to that to that low percentage level and let's say 
if we did it in Texas, it's probably going to be, a, it's probably going to freeze at about 8%, which 8% ain't shit. Not great. It's a lot better than 2.6 yeah. or zero, which is what Texas A&M research says it will be by 2026. If we don't do something, we will go to zero negotiated trade in Texas. So what's your cattle worth then? Whatever they feel like paying. Exactly. It's, it's not a lot different than today, but at least there are some areas where there is a cash trade to support a little bit more price discovery. Exactly. And, and, you know, and there's, uh, when we say there's no trade, there, there's a, there's a lot of bigger feeding outfits that they, they, their, their cattle don't go into negotiated trade. They're feeding Mexican cattle, or they're feeding coon shit, or or they're they're feeding something that's not all that great. It, it, they're not that desired, but they do hang on the hooks and they do make beef, and and you know it's it's a product that your packers need. Well, they'll sell uh, their cattle the high for the week, so they'll promise them a big volume of cattle. Uh, and, and the price they get is the highest price that anybody else has negotiated for within that area. And they may not let loose of the cattle unless they, they like, you know, what's going on. So in a way, those are, are at least they're negotiating their volume, but, uh, but a pure negotiated cash sale in Texas is rare and hard to find. Okay. So I, I'm always watching input costs, especially fuel costs, price of oil. Have we started to see any effects on the cattle market of $5 diesel fuel, or is that train wreck still coming at us? It, it, it's, it's here and it's still coming and it's uh, progressively uh, working on us. Uh, this week and last week, uh, we've noticed that uh, you would think that our feeder cattle prices would be going down uh, progressively so because our feedlots are full. We know that. And, uh, and there's, there's, uh, there's just not a lot of demand uh, to fill empty pens because there's not that many empty pens right now. But we also at the same time know that once we get into full summer, here within the next month or so, for at least two months there, there's not going to be very many feeder cattle to buy. And, and your guys want to stay in. Well, we're starting to see a significant premium in the Northern Plains and in the Midwest for feeder cattle to go right on to feed them. We're seeing in the Southern Plains because these, these, uh, these farmer feeders and these smaller feeding outfits, they've got access to corn. And a lot of them still have on-farm corn storage. And you would think, well, gosh, why don't they haul it to town and get, you know, $8 a bushel for it? Well, they'll have to give it to Uncle Sam. Yep. And they don't want to do that. They would rather put it through those cattle and, and build the equity in their cattle feeding operation by doing it that way. So, and because of freight, we are starting to see those cattle in the Northern Plains that which they always sell at a premium because 
I mean, it, it's a fact of life. It, it may hurt people's feelings, but the cattle in Nebraska are better than the cattle in Texas. They just are. A little bigger grade. If, if you're looking for grading, which that's what the whole world revolves around, you know, average choice or better. If you're looking for grading, the cattle are better. And so they're going to bring a premium, but they're starting to bring more of a premium because of freight. And uh, we're, we're starting to see that. And, and uh, I have to harp on uh, one of my other big uh, pet peeves is we've got to have more fall calving. Okay. Uh, right now and historically, 75% of the calves born in the United States are born the first half of the year. And you think, well, that's not too bad until you look at the second half of the year and you say only 25% of our calves are born the second half of the year. Well, what time of year do you like to eat steak? Summer. I like it year round. Yeah. Well, so does everybody else. And globally, especially because, you know, other parts of the year are enjoying different seasons, you know, on the other side of the globe, of course. and our, our cattle infrastructure can't handle 75% of our calves coming to them at the same time. We don't have, we don't have the pin space to hold them all at one time or, or a, over a, a, a majority of them at one time. We don't have the pin space. We don't have the hooks to hang them on. And we definitely don't have the trucks to haul them off. So in the fall of the year, in October, which everybody, uh, everybody winter calves anymore. They don't spring calve, they winter calve so <laughs> that they can have as big of a big pussy fat calf balling to sell when it comes October. And every year in October, your supply of big fat soggy calves balling outweighs demand and the market goes down. And, and, you know, if you're helping, you know, if you're turning your bulls out the same time as your neighbor and you always have, and you always, and y'all always help each other brand the same week and you do everything the same as each, how smart is that? You need to get out of step a little bit with your production cycle because it, it, it's clogging up our infrastructure in the fall of the year with all these big fat calves. I mean, I, I can 100% see your point. And there's arguments to be made about, you know, when to calve, calve on green grass, calve in the spring, summer, fall. I've seen those cows lay down on green grass and have a calf. They do, it doesn't have to be a snow drift or a mud hole. They yeah. can do it on green grass. A lot of people don't believe that. Yeah. And, and you know, it, th I found that they'll actually have calves out in the pasture just as good as they'll have them if they're standing in, in a dry lot. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> For but don't think don't think these big corporate feeders aren't trying to figure out a way to uh to to pin up beef cows and efficiently have calves and once they do that we're done yep yep the chickenization of the beef industry will be complete and absolutely you and i just might as well go to town and get jobs well it's, it's just it's going to be just as quick as 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 if we don't get some type of legislation like this cattle price discovery and transparency act if we don't get something like that done to limit what is this integration that's been going 
every cattle feeder will just be a contract grower, which they basically are now with the, with the sweetheart deals and everything like that. 85% but, of them are now. Yeah, exactly. And, but we're, we're, we're continuously losing our independent cattle feeders, our independent backgrounders, our independent cow calf guys, because it's gotten so consolidated. And if we don't get something done, it's going to, it's just look at the hog industry. Yeah. I was going to ask came, you about that. When I came to Missouri and I, in and, uh, and, and, and in 2000, I became the supervisor of the federal state uh, market news program, we still had viable feeder pig sales in Southern Missouri. You had a lot of guys that, that, uh, that farrowed out uh, pigs for a living. That's what they did. And they were very proud of their, of their pigs. And we had sales down there where that were getting 10,000 head of feeder pigs. And, uh, and you had a lot of, of, of growers, you know, they're not necessarily backgrounders, but growers of pigs and they would take, they would buy those pigs and grow them and then sell them on the, on the cash, uh, slaughter hog market. But in 1998, when they took the, uh, the hog market to eight cents pound, it pretty much eliminated all your independent hog feeders. The only guys that were left were contract growers. And, uh, and so, you know, and, then, and like I said, there was still a few feeder pig auctions left. And if you think those guys that had uh, a pot load of, of pigs weren't as proud of them as, as your rancher that's got a pot load of, of 500 pound black baldy steers, you're wrong. They were as proud of those pigs as, as anybody would be. And, uh, you know, I, I, and they, we still had a feeder pig auction at St. Joe Stockyards and I, and I reported the market there and, you know, some of those old hog guys would tell me, they said, oh, you remember back in, you know, 1980, so-and-so, you know, I remember how easy it was to sell pigs, you know, when corn got cheap. And, uh, and you know, one of the guys said, yeah, I, I made a phone call and got the wrong number one time, still sold a couple load of feeder pigs, you know, <laughs> it was just that easy. But, uh, but when they eliminated your cash market for, for slaughter hogs, it, 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 it rubbed out your feeder pigs. Feeder so, pig I want, it sounds like you saw that happen in the late nineties, the mid late nineties, you saw the pig market collapse. Right. How did that happen? It, it just, there was nobody to grow those pigs anymore. They, uh, they, your, 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 uh, your pork processors come in with rules and they said that you had to be a level three producer to feed hogs for them if, if they were going to buy your hogs. And that meant that you couldn't feed them on dirt anymore. You had to have a facility where you fed them on concrete or on slats. And, uh, and they wanted all the pigs to look the same. And so all your pigs had to be white and they had to be half brothers and sisters. And then they had to weigh within ounces of each other because they wanted everything so uniform. It kind of reminds you of the way that they're doing the cattle market right now. It's exactly. They they, want they're using it as a cattle, blueprint. They want all your cattle to be black. Whether or not they're Angus, they don't really give a shit. As long as they're black. If they're 51% black and they grade good enough, they still be CAB. So they don't have to be Angus. <clears throat> but they want them all to look alike. They want you to treat them the same way. And, and they want to dictate to you how you feed them. That's what they did in the hog business right before they pulled the rug out. 
and you know, and they decided they didn't want to have to post a cash price anymore. We we no longer had the Omaha hog market because you couldn't scrape enough hogs together in Omaha to make one truckload of, of hogs. So we, we quit reporting that at USDA because it wasn't a viable market. Well, everybody sold their hogs off the Omaha hog market. And then we went to country buying points and uh, that worked for a while till your buying stations weren't getting enough hogs to establish a price there. So they didn't really want, they didn't want to have to post a cash price anymore. Well, if, if they owned all the, all the hogs that were being fed and they owned the packing houses, why the hell should they have to come out with a price to post? And, right. and we're starting to see that with, with our, our, our fat cattle and our feedlots. They, they really don't want to have to come up with a price. And if they do, they want it to be so uh, infiltrated within some kind of a formula uh, where we can't report it because of confidentiality reasons and we can't really post it anywhere and nobody really knows what the market is. Is is the confidentiality really the root of it? Like if we had an open contract library and everybody knew what the prices were, would that help? It would, but, uh, you know, and part of my problem is I am a realist, which is why I support Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act. It's why I understand why we can't have 5014. If you're in Colorado, you basically got one buyer maybe two once in a while we'll get a we'll get a third regional packer coming down in there to buy some cattle from nebraska or somewhere but you basically have one buyer you don't have that many feedlots and they're basically owned by one entity well if if, if you report everything that you get in it's basically making jbs and five rivers pull their pants down you know and spread their cheeks and that's not, I don't, I don't know that that's fair for anybody. So it, it, it maintains confidentiality for your packers and your producers. And, and I'm considering a big uh, corporate feeder of a producer too. So nobody should have to tell that. But uh, included in Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act is the, the, the law making a uh, your cattle contract library be enforced. So that information would be very valuable to an independent feeder or somebody that's shopping around looking for an AMA or something like that. But they won't have to tell who their deal is with. And then they won't have to give every specific about it, but it would at least give an idea of, huh, this is how they're doing it. But, you know, and, and I live right amongst them. I mean, they live right down the road from me and across the road. These, these guys that are, that work for these uh, big corporate feeders and they will tell me privately, God, I hope you guys get something done on that because they know that if we're negotiating their base price at a higher level, that that base price is going to be better. And so they, but, but they can't say it out loud because you know, the, the, Packers crack their whip on them, you know. Yeah, so get fired. They, they can't can't say it out loud, but they but they will. And then I talk to other guys that are in these sweetheart deals, and they say, they say, how you guys can, you guys can force us to negotiate as many percentage cows as you want, but I'm not showing you my sweetheart deal. You know, 
my sweetheart deal includes everything up to and including Big 12 football scores, you know, and I'm not going to let you, uh, you know, get rid of my sweetheart deal because I know what kind of cattle I feed. I know how I feed them and I've crafted my sweetheart deal to, to fit those cattle. And, and there may not be what everybody else has to do to get a premium, but it's got enough volume. The only true premium uh, in your cattle feeding is volume. And then once you sign up into an AMA, that eliminates competition. Well, if you've got supply and no competition, you pretty much make the market anything you want it to be. Yep, that's for sure. That's for sure. So one of the last things I want to want to talk to you about is imports. Mm-hmm. I've heard I've heard the gentleman with cattle facts stand up in front of a room of people, and this was uh was this I think this was after the Tyson fire, but before COVID. So that was back when the Packers were only making like 400, 450 bucks a carcass in the, in the, I don't know, the I don't fire. It's terrible. and I sat there and I listened to the cattle facts guy, go through the import numbers, go through the export numbers. And he changed units in between, like one of them, he was using pounds and the other one was like million tons or, or, or something, but he kept changing up his units. So you weren't looking at it. So he wasn't showing the numbers, apples, the apples. So I sat there on my pad and I scribbled down the numbers and I, I did the conversions. I was like, okay, we're export, we're importing more than we're exporting. So tell me why all these imports are a good thing for the American cattlemen. And the guy with cattle facts got pretty upset. He didn't have an answer. Mate, can you, do you have an answer as to how? We're importing more than we're exporting, but why is that supposed to be a good thing for the cattlemen? Well, I don't think it's a good thing for the cattlemen, but the answer to why we do that is we are beef lovers here in the United States, and we sop up about 80% of our production right here in the United States. The reason why those imports and exports are important is, and you hear this and you don't like to hear it, but it's our relationships with our trading partners. You know, we make a shitload of grain and and a lot of times we need to get rid of that. So we we rely on a lot of these countries to, to, especially these, these countries like China, uh, that that uh, that don't have free market systems, and uh, and the production in China is pitiful. Why is that? Because everybody makes the same. You know, why are you going to get up at five in the morning and work your ass off when you're going to make the same as the laziest farmer? You know, because it, you know that's just the way it is. You know that they don't. It's you know, you don't you don't get paid on your production. You get paid the same. Everybody everybody gets paid the same. So, in essence, you don't have a lot of production out of those areas. Well, if we're going to sell them this much grain, then we have to buy so many of their widgets, and and we may even have to buy a little bit of beef off of them. But 
one thing that I've, I've always believed, and I know it to be true, and I got chastised for putting it into a, a government market report for once, but, uh, but the U.S. beef industry relies on Asia mostly to shop from the top of our shelves and Mexico to shop from the bottom. So okay. we, every carcass has stuff that we don't like. And so we've got to get rid of that. So if, if we're going to sell tripes and livers and, and uh, oxtails and things like that, that we don't typically eat, you know, we may have to buy a little bit of their, uh, of their product that we can grind up. Now, bringing that product in, which is heavily brought in from Brazil, now that two of our big four are owned by Brazil. That, that can't be a coincidence. That's not no, a coincidence. Yeah, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> but they, they, they slaughter a lot of brushy-type cattle. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying grass-fed with, with wholesome forages and things like that. I'm talking about just brushy-ass cattle that are, are uh, their maturity is too high for our grading system. And, and they're, they're just, you know, three or four or five-year-old just things that's been out there, you know, eating whatever. Well, that's not real palatable, and, uh, and, but, the, but the, it makes for some cheap beef. Well, they can bring that crap over here and then we feed most all of our cattle. So that makes them have way too much bark or fat around the outside of the carcass, which doesn't help their grading. It hurts it, makes them more yield grade fours and fives and not necessarily choice and primes. So we can trim that fat off, throw it in a hopper with some of that crap that we get from uh, South Africa or South America and, and grind it up. And it makes that brushy crap taste pretty good. Uh, and and that's, that's, uh, that's, that comes from our cows and the trimmings off of our steers and heifers. But them putting product of USA on that is not fair. Yes. And, and it should be against the law. And, uh, and, and, and uh, a lot of uh, people in the industry uh, cuss me because I do not support mandatory country of origin labeling, but I do support truth in, in labeling. So how would you want country of origin labeling to work? Do you think that should be, you think it should be a voluntary thing without a government mandate? No, I think we should have truth in labeling where if, if that, if, if there's a chance any of that product came from another country, it should have to say it. But 100%. 100%, 100%. But mandatory country of origin labeling, as many groups are fighting for and the way we had it before, meant that every label should have a listing of any country that that could possibly come from, which, you know, good information, but most housewives didn't pay any attention to it. They had a budget and they were buying what they bought. The problem with having to list all that stuff out like M. Cool calls for, is you've got packing plants in Canada. I, I, you know, there, our office in, in South St. Paul was right next to one. Uh, there was a, a plant in northern Minnesota that killed a lot of Canadian cows. 
I saw I Canadian trucks were backed up there every morning when I got to the office to unload Canadian cows. Well, with M Cool, they got to shut that plant down, sterilize the entire plant, get every speck of meat out of every saw. Then they could start processing some, some cattle that came from another country. Okay, as soon as they got done processing those, shut the plant down again, sterilize everything there, get every speck of meat out of every single blade, out of every corner of every uh, stainless steel table before they could go back. And when you're in cattle production, you want smoke blowing out of all those stacks in right. those packing plants at all times. So, so having to specify that, all I really want to know is, is it, is it completely a product of the USA or is it, or is it not? That's yeah. all I really give a shit about. Just tell me whether it is or it ain't. And, and then I can make my purchasing uh, decisions based on that. I don't need you to shut those plants down and, 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 and I'm talking about further processing too, which also includes that, but that's why I, I'm for truth and labeling, not necessarily for him cool. I, you know, I can agree with that. We need some truth in labeling and anything, but the flip side of that is anything the government comes down and has, and we give the government the power to mandate and regulate, that's a power that they'll always have because the, there's no power that the government has ever given up or rolled back or said, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't be involved in this anymore. So we're just going to quit doing it. It's government and once the government kind of gets involved in something, their involvement kind of always tends to increase over time. I, I agree with that to a level, but a lot of people are using that as an argument to fight against this cattle price discovery and transparency act. But everything in, in, in the beef processing and cattle feeding is monitored by the government. You know, if you, you've got so many head on feed and, you know, you don't have containment of your, of your manure and you're going to have to have a lagoon or, you know, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to follow rules by that. You can only put so much weight on those trucks when you're sending those trucks in somewhere. You know, you've got to have a, inspection whenever you slaughter those animals who else can oversee uh our trading of fed cattle and make sure that it's on a, on a level playing field or that we get a proper amount of negotiated trade to exploit that price with amas after we get after we establish that price who else can oversee it that that's all there is is the government you know we can't you know, the anybody else is going to get paid off, you know, at, at the very beginning. And there's nobody else that has the authority to do that. So we have to have them come in there. And I will agree if they would have enforced those PNS regulations that we had for a hundred years, if they would have enforced them through the 60s and 70s and 80s, we wouldn't be in the shape that we're in right now. But we are. And so we have to do that, uh, you know, and even though, uh, you know, they're working that uh, special investigator bill through uh, Congress right now or trying to, it's going to be hard for them to go in there and say, uh, Packers can't own cattle anymore. Well, 
they do own them. They have control of them through these through these marketing agreements. Now that's one thing the introduction of Brazilian uh, Packers changed is they didn't outright own them anymore. You know, we, we, you, we used to have Caprock cattle feeders. Well, that was Cargill's cattle feeding enterprise. You know, we had Five Rivers, which was JVS or, or Swift's cattle feeding enterprise. Everybody had, you know, uh, J, or JVS come in there and they could not manage the logistics of running a feedlot because they didn't know how to get the cattle bought because they weren't they weren't used to of having to negotiate for those those feeder cattle either they'd just go make a contract with a big ranch and they'd send that those cattle in until they rent out and then they'd go do another one uh, they didn't know how to go to all these pesky competitive uh negotiated auction markets and buy these feeder cattle they didn't know how to do it you know, people were sending them ball and calves and they wondered why they were getting sick when they got to the feedlot. So they decided that they no longer wanted to own Five Rivers Cattle Feeding Enterprise. And so they sold it, but made it made it uh, where they got all the cattle that come out of them. You know, and all your other big packers and the ones that lived here or were, uh, you know, native to the United States, they said, hey, these, these Brazilians aren't as dumb as they look. <laughs> You know, we don't want to feed the cattle either. We just want them. We just want control of them. And so you saw Caprock disperse their, you know, Cargill doesn't own own their cattle anymore. They've dispersed them all uh, to other big corporate feeders and stuff. They just want control of the cattle. They don't want to have to feed them themselves. Because there's risk in there. Sure. They're they just don't trying want to any risk. They're trying to insulate themselves from all the risk and they haven't figured out how to de-risk the cow-calf business enough to suit them yet, which is why we haven't been chickenized or we haven't been porkified. Exactly. But we are, if you stand back and, and where you can see the forest from the trees, we are slowly being, being done that way, but they don't want any liability when it comes as far as health and safety. And they don't want any risk. And uh, I noticed that when I was back east working in Pennsylvania, when Smithville come in and bought the major packing plant out there, uh, they immediately, they're like, why do we have to compete for these fat cattle? We're in the hog business. We, we just make contracts with everybody. Everybody's a contract grower. Nobody knows what the market is. We're making lots of money. We want to do that on the cattle end too. They started going to those small independent feeders back east in Pennsylvania, and they wanted to get them all under contract. And then they even went to the to the Mennonite and Amish uh, people that had uh, you know that that grew cattle, and they wanted to get them under contract. They wanted to contract all their calves at weaning, you know, several years out. Well, how would you know what your inputs are, you know, at, at that point uh, to whether you could be profitable or not? But they, they immediately wanted to turn the cattle industry into the hog business. And, and that's slowly what's happening all over the country. So how do we stop it? We've got to preserve what little negotiated trade we have. If we ever allow them to completely get rid of the negotiated trade, it's over. And, and the only way we can do that is put mandates on it. Yep. Yet we've got our biggest cattle associations fighting it because of their fear of the packer. 
you know, I, I know, uh, and, uh, and he recently passed, but he was a huge cattle feeder and a close personal friend of mine. I shouldn't say close, but he was a personal friend of mine. And, uh, and he uh, had thoughts and then there was rumors of him building his own packing plant or him and his family building a packing plant. And, uh, and uh, you know, they had, they had went so far to, to uh, you know, finding a place to put it, finding a, a, a labor uh, pool to get it going and all this kind of stuff. And then it kind of stalled out. And, and I, I talked to him one day and I said, I thought you were going to build your own packing plant. He said, I was. And he said, I, I looked at it. I looked at the feasibility of it and it would have worked. And I said, so, you know, what the hell? And he said, well, the bad thing about building my own packing plant is it takes two years to build it. He said, you know what they could do to me in two years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably put him completely out of business. And, Absolutely. He'd be uh, out of business before he ever got opened up. And I fear that for these new plants that are coming in and using some of that uh, Biden money to, to come in. I, you know, I desperately need regional packers. Uh, and, you know, the one that's uh, coming in North Platte and, and some of the others, I, gosh, I, I hope and pray that they're able to work. But you think that these, these big four packers play dirty pool in, in purchasing of the cattle? You wait till they find out how dirty a pool they can play on the other end on selling the meat. Well, and I mean, they don't they need don't. to invest any of the record profits they've made in the last two and a half years to build new plants because somebody's going to build them a brand new one in North Platte, Nebraska that they'll, they'll buy, buy it for pennies on the dollar, 10 cents on the taxpayer subsidized dollar exactly. within 10 years. Yeah. Al Capone didn't start out in the in the packing district in Chicago by accident. I haven't heard this. Those mobsters and thugs started out in the packing districts and they're still there. It's the same strong arm tactics that they used back in the 20s and 30s. It's just a, at a different level. It's so faster and use intimidation and backlash and strong arm tactics and fooling yourself. It's faster and scarier now because much cell more. phones and text messages. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Corbett, it has been awesome hanging out with you today. And uh Okay. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Well, Brian, I'm just going to tell you right now, I have no plans of, of committing suicide. And if they find me dead in my cell, it wasn't because I hung myself with a bed sheet. Okay. okay. I, I will make sure that that gets in the show. I will not edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make that, make that clear. <laughs> All right. Well, so where can people find you if you don't get Clintonized? Okay, well, uh, you can find me on my daily uh, cattle market report, which uh, at one point it was a three-minute update, which we, we went way beyond that. But it's usually from 10 to 15 minutes, usually around 12 minutes, and it's called the feeder flash. Uh, you can find me on, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, my favorite place for people to go to find that report is at a website called National Beef Wire, and that includes my report and a lot of other market information. 
that we draw with DV auctions uh, of uh, power and, and connections and technology. And uh, it's got a lot of information on there at nationalbeefwire.com. And you can go on there. You can have uh, the, the feeder flesh in your inbox every morning as soon as it gets posted and you can you can view it that way but uh that that's the best way to get a hold of uh, of my information great stuff i'll make sure all that gets in the show notes all right thank you very much right. did we forget anything today probably but that's okay that's just a good excuse to do another one later sure all right well corbett thanks again for your time and uh we'll catch you we'll catch you later thanks brian all right, gang, y'all have a great week.